today we say goodbye to Leviticus. Are y'all sad? Are you sad you're going to come to church next Sunday and not hear anything about killing animals or weird laws? <laughs> Anybody grieving this? I'm seriously grieving this because y'all know by now how much I love Leviticus. I love this book and we've spent four weeks on it now. And uh, we had livestock in the house last week. I mean, what other book in the Bible lets you bring goats into the sanctuary other than Leviticus? I don't think we have any livestock with us today. Anyone bring any farm animals? Wives, your husbands don't count. All right, stop pointing <laughs> to the seat next to you. Uh, we had Dump Truck and Sugar with us last Sunday. Those are the names of our two goats. Uh, and it was a great time. We reenacted the Day of Atonement in which one goat is sacrificed for the sins of the people and the other goat is let go free. And if you weren't here, don't worry, no goats were harmed in the process of reenacting the Day of Atonement. Uh, but we have had so much fun with this series, or I have, I don't know if y'all have or not, I've had a great time. And today we're wrapping up with really what's supposed to be the culmination of Leviticus. It's all supposed to be building up to today's chapter, um, and it's like the rest of Leviticus is the training for what the people of God should be doing in Leviticus 25. The rest of it was like, uh, you know, you're getting ready for a marathon. Leviticus 25 today is what it looks like to run the marathon, and, uh, and so um, that's, that's what we're going to get into today. Uh, so far in the series, the first three weeks, we've talked a lot about holiness and um, what holiness is, what it isn't. We shared a couple weeks ago how most people today don't really get what holiness is. When they hear holiness, they hear one of two things. They hear like spirituality, like you can go do some hot yoga and call yourself holy. Or they hear self-righteousness, like you can go and tell the world they're all sinners going to hell because they're not like you. And you can call yourself a holy person. That's Neither of those things really is what biblical holiness is all about. For, for us, scriptural holiness is having your heart completely enamored with God, having your heart completely in line with the love and the priorities of God. Your heart is completely fixed on God when you are living a holy life. Have you ever known someone like that who was a holy person in the sense that their heart was fixed on God? I don't mean that friend of yours that recites all the Bible verses to you all the time, necessarily. I mean, Jesus said even the demons know Bible verses, right? So never trust your friends that know all the Bible verses at just the right times. You know, the, the, you know, I'm not talking about those friends that get in the fights on Facebook threads on hot topics and things like that. I'm talking about your, that one person in your life whose heart is fixed on God. And they bring light and peace with them wherever they go. They walk into a room and the room is a little bit brighter than it was before. Do you know someone like that? Someone who just brings that joy with them wherever they go because their hearts are so at one with God? That's what holiness is supposed to be. That's what Leviticus is supposed to be pulling people toward. Not religion and not anything other than holiness, oneness with God. Your heart should be fixed on God. All right, so... Um, that's what holiness is supposed to be. We don't always uh, get that, unfortunately, but we know it when we see it. And the people that are holy are the ones we always, they're like magnets. People just are drawn to them. C.S. Lewis, the great uh, Christian author, said 
How little people know who think holiness is boring. For when they see the real thing, it is irresistible. When you meet someone who is living in holiness, their heart is fixed, transfixed on God. You find it irresistible. You want what they have. John Wesley is the founder of uh, Methodism, the Methodist movement of which the story is a part. John Wesley said that there are two marks of the true Christian life. He said the one thing is holiness and the second is happiness. And they go hand in hand. And if you are truly sincere in your pursuit of Christ, you will live a holy life and you will thus be happy, joyful. Which is interesting to me because I keep reading these studies that say non-religious people in the United States think of Christians and they think they're hypocritical and they're judgmental. Like those are the two marks of Christians. But for John Wesley and for many, many others, the two marks of the Christian life are holiness and happiness. And keeping in mind that holiness is having your heart completely fixed on God. And John Wesley said the mission of the church is to have our collective heart fixed on God and to spread this scriptural holiness throughout the city. So for John Wesley, it wasn't just about uh, what's going on in your life. And this is one of the mistakes we make in our walks with Jesus. We think my walk is my walk and your walk is your walk. My spirituality is about me. Your spirituality is about you. And let's just keep it that way because nobody wants to talk about these kinds of things with each other. John Wesley said, and many, many others have said, that's not enough. Yeah, there are some personal practices you should be doing that lead you toward a more holy life. You should be reading the Bible on your own, praying. You should be a generous person. You should be disciplined in the way you spend your time and your money. But if all those personal holiness practices aren't having an impact on the city, if there are no social consequences to the holy life you're living, then it's not real holiness. John Wesley said there is no holiness but social holiness. There's this idea that what's going on in your heart, in our collective hearts, should be leading to a transformation from within the church that bleeds outward into the city. The city of Houston should be transformed by the holiness that's happening in churches like the story. So this idea of social holiness is where we get to today. This is where Leviticus has been building to all those little rules and things that we talked about before the day of atonement, everything was building to this idea from Leviticus 25. Would you take your Bibles? If you have them, please. And turn with me. If you don't have a Bible, we would like to give you one. Uh, in addition to the other gift, we'd like to give you as a first time guest, let us give you a Bible on the way out of the service today. You can pick up your Bible, um, as a gift from the story. If you don't have a Bible, but you'd like to use your phone, I won't judge you too harshly uh, for using your phone Bible thing. That's okay too. I'm coming around to that idea. Kind of old fashioned <laughs> and, uh, and tablet or whatever that you need to use there. You also have your study guides and this has this passage on your study guides as well. If you find it handy there, this is Leviticus 25. <clears throat> this is about Jubilee. You shall hallow the 50th year. I'm sorry. Verse 10 is where I'm starting. Verse 10. Uh, and then I'll go through 13. You shall hallow the 50th year and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. I'm going to jump forward to verse 15. 
In this year of Jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your own property. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall pay only for the number of years since the Jubilee. The seller shall charge you only for the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price. If the years are fewer, diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat each other, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. This is God speaking. The land is God's. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. Throughout the land that you hold, you shall provide for the redemption of the land. All right. Uh, we'll stop there. We'll come back. Keep your Bibles handy. Okay. Um, so do you understand what's being called for here? It's a whole chapter. I just picked out a little section of it to help us get our heads around what Leviticus is leading toward. This is huge. This is a revolutionary social idea that God is giving to the people of God. It's called Jubilee. Jubilee literally means ram's horn. This is an actual horn of a ram. Um, and we almost killed it earlier when we were playing our music and it fell off the stage. I was going to try and play it for you. I might try at the end of today's service uh, because they heard me playing it before uh, the service and they said it sounded really pathetic and embarrassing. So I'm going to wait and do it uh, maybe another time. Um, but what would happen is that uh, so it was based on the Sabbath system. So you know every Sabbath day, according to the creation narrative, is a day of rest. Every seventh day is a, is a Sabbath day, a day of rest. And the same was true with years. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. And every uh, seventh year, you didn't farm. And everybody farmed then. Farming then was like oil today. Can you imagine every seventh year in Houston? Uh, don't drill any oil. Stay home with your families. Live off what you've saved. Let yourself rest. Let the land rest every seven years. It would change how we, now economic, uh, economists disagree about whether that would actually work or not in our current system, but it would change things, right? Every seventh year, you rest it. Now, the seventh, seventh year, the 49th year, after that, on the 50th year, was supposed to be this super Sabbath. This year of jubilee, where not only did you let the land rest and yourself rest, but any land you had acquired, you gave back to the one that sold it to you. So you really just rented it for some harvest seasons. Any land that you had to sell was given back to you and your family. Um, if you were in debt... Uh, whoever you were indebted to wrote that debt off and cut their losses. If someone was indebted to you at the year of Jubilee, you cut your losses and set them free. If you had acquired a slave over these years, slaves were all about debt. Debt slaves were paying off their debt. If you had a debt slave who hadn't paid off his or her debt yet at Jubilee, you set that person free. If you were a slave, you had fallen on hard times and you had to take out a loan and you were working off that loan for someone else and Jubilee came and you still had that slave debt, you were free to go. It was supposed to be this enormous upheaval. It was supposed to be the culmination of the Levitical laws that set the people apart. This idea, Jubilee, was supposed to set the people of God apart from all the other nations and all the other peoples. This is what life was supposed to look like when God says, I am different, so you be different. So this was supposed to be the great reset button where no one got too rich, no one got too poor, no one had too much land, 
No one had no land. And if you dug yourself a hole too deep to get out of, if you told one too many lies and that web was too tangled to escape, if you made one too many mistakes and you didn't think you had any hope, Jubilee was supposed to be your great reset button. It was supposed to be the people of God's chance to get it right again, to be kind of a, a wake-up call. So in Leviticus, God says, my people will be different. You will do business differently. You will loan money differently. Your economy will be different. Your religion will be different. Your relationships will be different because I, the Lord, am your God, and I am different. That's what we've been talking about the whole series, the difference of God. Now, this sounds a little creepy to good red-blooded American capitalists. I am a red-blooded American capitalist, and I kind of understand why this freaks us out a little bit, this idea of jubilee. It sounds like social engineering and things uh, that scare us. It sounds weirdly utopian, I think. But I just want to ask you to divorce yourself from all of that conversation for just a minute and think with me. Have you ever watched the news or scanned the headlines? Let me ask more specifically. Did you watch the news this week? or scan your headlines this week, did any part of you think we need a do-over? We need to start again. We need a fresh beginning. This has gone horribly wrong. This isn't the way we were meant to live as a society, as a nation. Have, have you ever thought that as you looked at the paper? I don't, nobody looks at the paper anymore. As you, as you saw the news, did you ever think this isn't right? We need to start over. The political season is cranking up again. Soon we'll be electing a new president. We're about to be barraged with all these political ads. Billions of dollars are going to be poured into the electoral process. How many people here would like to press Control-Alt-Delete on the American political electoral system? Can I get an amen? We are $18 trillion in debt. Who here is willing to say we don't need a reset? We need it. We could use some jubilee. We could use that reset button right about now. And, and even closer to home, I know some of you came here this morning hoping, longing, wishing for a reset. And you're deep in that hole you made too many mistakes, you hurt your spouse one too many times, you've been an absent father or mother one too many times, you failed at work one too many times, the job search isn't going the way that you need it to go, and you're scared. Jubilee was meant to be a hope for the hopeless. It was supposed to be a way out for those in too deep. Let's continue. Isaiah 61 is my next passage I'd like to share with you. If you will turn with me to the prophet Isaiah's book, we're going to read verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. These are the prophet's words. Speaking to the people hundreds of years after Leviticus was written, this is after they formed their society. They built a powerful kingdom. The kingdom fell at the hands of another kingdom. They were exiled and in captivity again. And here is God revisiting the people after all that trauma, saying through the prophet Isaiah, 
The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a clear reference to the year of Jubilee. It could mean nothing else in Old Testament context. It was obviously Isaiah saying, the time for Jubilee has now come, which is so interesting to me when I read Isaiah because it comes hundreds of years after Jubilee was introduced in Leviticus. But it still hasn't happened yet. Because do you know how many times between 1500 AD, uh, BC and 600 BC that the Hebrew people celebrated Jubilee? Zero times. The rest of Leviticus, they followed to the letter of the law. The rest of Leviticus, all those weird, strange rules we've been talking about and laughing at, all that was literal, right? But Jubilee, not so much. And we don't really know why. No one truly knows why, but I've got a hunch because I've got a pretty good grasp on human nature. I think something happened in the 50 years between the time Leviticus introduces Jubilee and the time Jubilee was supposed to happen. I think the people in charge got a little bit richer got a little bit more powerful, a little bit more comfortable with the way things were. And suddenly, they decided that while the rest of Leviticus is the literal true word of God, this one chapter about Jubilee where I'm supposed to give my things away, that's a metaphor. <laughs> I don't celebrate Jubilee in our economy. We celebrate it in our hearts. You see what happens? This is what happens when you have so much to let go of, you hold on to it a little more tightly. And so the people of God, the Hebrew people, in those 50 years, I think they were like, everything else is fine. You know, um, no bacon? No problem. No polyester? It's all good. No sleeping with your stepmom or sugar the goat? No sweat, like, no, we can do that. But Jubilee, handing my stuff over, starting over economically again, uh, no, thank you. And so uh, Jubilee became more of uh, an idea than uh, it was a reality for the Hebrew people in the Old Testament times. Now, we can look back and we can blame them and we can say, oh, they, they didn't, uh, you know, they didn't follow through or whatever. We do the same things with our scriptures, don't, don't we? I mean, haven't we decided that there are some passages that are just metaphorical? And yeah, there are some passages where Jesus speaks in hyperbole, but there's some when I'm not real sure he's speaking in hyperbole. We just wish he was. <laughs> like the time that the rich guy comes to him and Jesus says, sell all your stuff and then give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And we say things like, well, he didn't mean me. He meant that guy. That guy that one time. Because he had a problem with stuff. He liked his stuff. I'm not addicted to my stuff. Where's my phone? You know, like, <laughs> the, the, we do the same kind of thing. We trivialize things that are meant to be taken 
seriously. Uh, and, and really, it's not that they're unrealistic. It's just we don't want to do them. And G.K. Chesterton, his great Christian uh, philosopher, was in the middle of this debate with a famous atheist named George Bernard Shaw. Uh, and uh, George Bernard Shaw was uh, critiquing the, the merits of the Christian faith. And he said, the declining numbers in church attendance throughout Europe is proof of Christianity's irrelevance. And G.K. Chesterton responded, he said, uh, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Many of us can relate. And I think that's what happened to Jubilee in ancient times. It wasn't unrealistic. It was just hard. Imagine trying to introduce something like Jubilee in the city of Houston where we have such clearly drawn lines between kind of haves and have-nots. I mean, imagine introducing a total economic overhaul, a reset button in the city of Houston. I imagine in the Fifth Ward, you'd hear a lot of, yeah, let's do it. In River Oaks, you'd hear a lot of, I'll celebrate it in my heart. <laughs> because the more you have, the harder it is to let go, to release what you're attached to. I'm going to fast forward another 600 years and share one more passage with you. Luke chapter 4, if you'll join me, please, in your Bibles. Luke chapter 4. Luke is the third uh, New Testament book. If you're unfamiliar, Luke chapter 4, verse 14 is where we will start. I believe it's in your study guides, too. You can follow along. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, really. He's just been tempted in the wilderness by the devil, and now he's launching his movement. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and as was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does this sound familiar? We just read it. I hope it sounds familiar. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Today, this scripture. What's he saying? Today, Jubilee has come. Jesus is introducing himself not only as the Messiah, but as our Jubilee embodied. Today, Jesus says. Our only problem as we think about this, logically, is that when Jesus said, today, Jubilee has been fulfilled in your hearing, it was 2,000 years ago. And what has changed? What's different socially, governmentally? Governments are still as corrupt as they ever were. You can make a case that life has gotten better, the world has gotten better, fewer people are dying from hunger and poverty-related diseases. That's awesome. But really, we still have inequality, do we not? We still have the haves and have-nots. We still have corrupt governments. And so what is Jesus saying here when he says, today, 
Jubilee has come. Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. When we still continue to struggle with corruption and debt. Anyone here in debt at all? Still some debt? You'd like some jubilee in your life, as would I. But to understand this, we have to understand what Jesus came to do and what he didn't come to do. I see uh, T-shirts sometimes and bumper stickers and Facebook things where people like to suggest that Jesus, uh, were he alive today, would be like a socialist, you know, like he would want us to have a more socialist government and the way that we live our lives together. We should all have equal things as a society, as a nation. And I'm not at all sure that's what Jesus had in mind when I hear him say today, This has been fulfilled because, as best I can tell, Jesus couldn't care less about government. I don't really think Jesus cares what party you are. I don't think Jesus really cares who your president is or what country you're from or what government that country has because Jesus didn't really come to establish a government. Government was why Jesus ended up on a cross Jesus came to establish the church. The church is what Jesus came to give birth to. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that 50 days, that seven Sabbaths after his death and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and sets a group of believers on fire, and the world has never been the same since. And 50 days after his death and resurrection, the church is born in that fire, And a year later, 12 people had become 12,000. 500 years after Jesus' resurrection, 12,000 had become 12 million. And today there are 2.2 billion Christians in the world lifting up Jesus' name, many of them even as we lift up his name this morning. And it begs the question, how did 12 become 2.2 billion. What made and what continues to make the church so attractive, so appealing to those looking for answers, especially in places where poverty runs rampant, especially in places of need, like in Africa and South America, where Christianity continues to grow like wildfire. What is it about the church that stands apart from government and the other structures of our society? The only answer that makes sense to me is jubilee. Jubilee is what sets the church apart. Jubilee is what we are here to proclaim. Jubilee is what we are here to become. Uh, in the uh, in the second century, mid-100s A.D., the leader of the church, his name was Tertullian. If you ever hated the name your parents gave you, just be thankful. Your name's not Tertullian. Uh, kindergarten would be rough if you're Tertullian. But the, uh, so the, his, his quote was uh, that non-believers would see the church being the church, and they would shake their heads and go, do you see how they love each other? That's what the church was known for. And I know we've gotten it wrong at times, and we should always be willing to apologize and confess the ways we've missed the point. But that's what we're supposed to be. In the 500s AD, there was a Roman emperor named Julian. 
who was so envious and so filled with hate because he was humiliated by the Christian church because the church was feeding the Roman citizens who were poor more efficiently and in a better way than the Roman government could. Julian's quote was, these irreverent Christians not only take care of their poor, they take care of ours as well. This is the church. This is Jubilee. And I know we've gotten it wrong at times, but when the church gets it right, there is nothing else on earth like what we can become together. There's nothing else in Houston like what a local church that gets it right can be. How many of you have gone to Astros games this year? Anyone been to an Astros game? Of you. I used to think that going to church was a lot like going to a sporting event. There was a congregation, there was a shared cause, there was a hoped for outcome. All these things are familiar. But at second glance, it couldn't be more different because when you go to an Astros baseball game, you get what you pay for. The experience of you going to the baseball game is, uh, it, it is tempered by what you're able to pay. Because if you can pay more, you get a better experience. I was given a ticket to the Diamond Club last week. And my life will never be the same. I'll never be able to go to another baseball game and buy a regular ticket. Because the experience in the Diamond Club is completely different from the experience in the nosebleed section. And at baseball games, you get what you pay for. Can you imagine walking in the door on a Sunday morning? And before they let you in to take a seat, they check the giving records to see which seat you deserve. Whether you deserve a nice cushy seat or maybe you deserve to sit on those uncomfortable bleachers back there. Or maybe you don't get a seat at all based on giving record. You know, can you imagine if we did things that way? That's not how we do things at the church. That's not what we're about. Think about like public schools too. Everybody says public schools are equal and it's our best shot at equality as a society. Everybody knows public schools aren't equal. They're based on what your zip code is. What if you took your kids up to Sunday school and we checked to see which neighborhood you lived in before sending you, your kid to a certain class? And if you lived in the right neighborhood, you got to go to the one with all the natural lighting and the nice teacher who knows the Bible and new art supplies and, you know, it's, there's music playing and it's, it's beautiful and your kid runs in there and she's happy. But if you don't live in the right neighborhood, you got to go next door where there's fluorescent lighting and this mean, angry teacher who's never read the Bible and she's mad at her husband and all the crayons are broken in half and they're in a shared basket and your kid hates you for leaving, you, leaving him there. Can you imagine? That's not what we do here. Can you imagine if at the end of today's service, you came forward and the piece of bread you received, the size of the bread you received was commensurate with your salary or your net worth? Or if you're really a high roller, you get wine instead of grape juice? Can you imagine? That's not how we do things. Everyone gets the same portion here. Not because some government told us that's how it is. It's because our God is different, so we will be different. And everyone gets the same seat. Everyone gets the same Christian education in their classes. Everyone's children are treated with the same sacred worth because that's who we are. And that idea is one that comes from Leviticus. Now we point to like Galatians where it says all have sinned and fall, or Romans 3.23 where it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But even that idea is rooted in Leviticus where God says, be good to the immigrants among you because you were immigrants too. Take care of the poor people with you because you were poor too. 
Be gentle, be kind with one another. Let your slaves go because you used to be slaves as well. And never forget it. Everyone is in need of redemption. Everyone is in need of a fresh start. All right. Uh, I want to close with just one story that I was told this week about a university that started in 1866. Six months after the end of the Civil War, there was a university that was founded by a bunch of Christian preachers in Nashville, Tennessee, for former slaves of the South. It's called Fisk University, named after a Methodist, as it were. And uh, these former slaves came and began to study, but quickly the university ran out of money. And so they formed a choir, a traveling choir that would go through the South and the North and raise money for the university. And they scratched together a few dollars here and there. And on their most profitable tour, they were in Ohio in 1867 when they heard about uh, the fire in Chicago that had flattened the whole city. And some of them had family members there and they heard about the suffering there. And so the choir got together that night after the performance and they voted unanimously to send all of their earnings from their tour to Chicago. That night, they didn't even have money for a place to stay. And so they slept in the middle of winter in a train station and they pondered their future. Many of them thought that it was over. Not just the choir, but the university. That night, their director slept outside of the train station to keep them safe because they were always in danger. It was still a really tense time in our nation. And the choir members, the college students, they slept inside the train station. And in the morning, the director came back inside and said, not only are we not going to quit, we're going to have a name. We're going to name ourselves the Fisk Jubilee Singers after the Jubilee of Leviticus, where the slaves were freed. And we're going to keep doing what we're doing and continue raising money for our university, setting people free. At their next performance back in Tennessee, there was a white man there whose family owned slaves just a couple of years before. And when this choir stood and sang, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a balm in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. He said he felt the Spirit of God coming into his heart like never before. He said the power of their voices set him free. He said, for the first time, I realized that I was the one in chains, that I was the one enslaved, that it was my heart that was, that, that was torn by fear and hatred of people who were not like me. And they set me free. He said, this is Jubilee. And I'm just going to ask you as we wrap up Leviticus series to be honest with yourself about what it is that binds you. What chains are wrapped around your heart today? What is it that enslaves your soul? There is that one sin that you used to fight when you could. You fought it well. But now you've given way, and it has you by the throat. There is someone here today who's decided that she is not worth what she hears she's worth at church. 
There is someone here today whose job search is not going the way he needs it to go. There is someone here today who thinks the hole is too deep and you will never escape it. I want you to hear the words of Jesus today. This is the year of the Lord's favor. Let this be the day that you choose holiness, that you choose happiness in Christ. Let this be the day that you say yes and that you submitted, surrendered to what God has wanted to do with your life all along. Let today be your jubilee. Do not let one more day go by. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for our freedom. We thank you for our forgiveness, for this new life you want to give us. We're grateful for this new hope we have in you, for finding us when we've been lost, for redeeming us when we've been wrapped up in chains, the chains of sin and guilt and shame. Thank you, God. We receive the gifts of this communion in Christ's name. Amen.